I will put you in the driver's seat at Le Mans. You just shut your mouth and let me do my thing. We're on the verge of something. And now you tell me that I can't have the best man in the world behind the wheel? Give me one reason why I don't fire everyone starting with you. Well, sir, we're lighter, we're faster. So nice. And that don't work, we're nastier. Go ahead, Carol. Go to war. It's Matt Damon, it's Christian Bale, it's an all-American victory story with a backing track of burnt rubber. What petrol head could resist the tale told in Ford versus Ferrari, showing now at a theatre near you? It's all about how the Ford Motor Company, a US war hero and an awkward but brilliant Brit, took on the all-powerful Ferrari race team in the 1966 Le Mans 24-hour race and won. Hang on. The 1966 Le Mans, wasn't that the year three New Zealand heroes of motorsport covered themselves in glory? When Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon drove Ford's winning car and Denny Holm was driving the second place getter? Well, yes, but you wouldn't know it from the story. It's it's kind of a half a story and it's kind of a strange shaped version of the story. Hi, I'm Alexia Russell, and on the detail today, how Hollywood spun one of New Zealand's big sporting victories to leave us out altogether. In the movie, you see a flash of the winner on the final lap. It's a black car driven by two Kiwis, but the camera's focus is on the second place getter. In that car, you briefly see an actor playing New Zealander Denny Holm switch seats with the film's hero, Ken Miles, who, the movie says, was cheated out of his chance of glory by being ordered to slow down. Holm, who drove 12 hours of the 24-hour race with Miles, has one line. This fleeting mention of such key players has irked the listener's books and culture editor, Russell Bailey. It boils it down to two main guys. When motor racing, especially in 24-hour races, was a team sport. So if you're making a movie about how one guy lost his chance to win the race, it's kind of like, well, I'm not, I'm not too sure if that, those two things reconcile that well. Bailey knew about the background because he studied it and has written about the Roger Donaldson documentary on Bruce McLaren released two years ago. If Bruce had come into the factory one morning and said, OK, men... We're not going to work on racing cars today. We're going to march across the Sahara Desert. We'd all say, "Okay, Bruce, no problem. Motor race is not something you just suddenly learn out of the blue. You've got to have it inside, and Bruce certainly had all that. There was kind of a golden era of New Zealand guys in international motorsport in those days. There was Denny Holm. There was Bruce McLaren, who uh, you know, tragically died in, in the 70s. And there was Chris Amon, who died not that long ago. Uh, Chris Amon back in those days was was the young guy. Bruce McLaren was kind of the um, mechanical genius who became the guy who started McLaren Supercars, a brand we still have roaring around the streets of, of the world today. Denny Holm was kind of the quiet, um, you know, maybe typical Kiwi of the three. He was also our only Formula One champion. Uh, he won the, the Formula One the following year after Le Mans. So how in the lexicon of New Zealand sport, how do these three guys stack up as heroes? Oh, they're pretty, they're pretty big. I guess motorsport is a funny one for people because they just think it's petrol heads. But, you know, these guys are athletes. To drive a car that fast and that long, you have to be an athlete as well as um, have no fear gland. These guys were the Spitfire pilots of the 50s and 60s. 
pretty funny when you have a car racing movie cutting corners. Ho, ho. <laughs> um, but there's this kind of... The other interesting thing about the film, is it focuses on Carol Shelby, Matt Damon, and Christian Bale, Ken Miles, who's this uh, irascible English guy who's uh, racing cars in the States. He's coming to the end of his career age-wise, perhaps. He hasn't had a great racing record, but it focuses on the, this kind of odd couple. You know, Carol Shelby is kind of a good old boy, ex-motor uh, sport champion, now guy who makes uh, Cobra sports cars, you know, the famous American yeah. sports car. So um, that's their focus. But, you know, Carol Shelby had Bruce McLaren, Denny Holm, Chris Amon on contract as well. Uh, Denny Holm was in the car with Ken Miles the whole way around. In theory, he of a 24-hour race, he drove 12 hours. You get to see him for less than 12 seconds in the film. But unlike most of us, Bailey then got to interview the film's producer, James Mangold, so he asked him about it. Coming at it from a nationalistic perspective, as the director commented when I talked to him, yeah, I guess I had a few concerns about the, um, you know, where the where the film was putting its emphasis and, you know, the, uh, and, and a bit of damaged pride on behalf of you know, people who have a lot of respect for those those three guys from New Zealand Motorsports. So tell me about your interview with James Mangold. Did you bring up this whole thing? And yeah. What, and his reply was that you're being a bit nationalistic. Yeah, that was kind of his yeah. reply. And I, I get that. You know, the screenplay had obviously been through a few iterations and he, he, he said he had decided that the film should focus on those two guys, the Matt Damon character, who's American, um, the Christian Bale guy who's... Uh, British, English. Um, and I get that. You know, you have to tell a story and have a dramatic arc and all those kind of things. But at the same time, you sort of think, well, you know, the guys who actually won the race or who were declared the winners, uh, wouldn't mind meeting them. You know, <laughs> the, the guy, Denny Holm, who dr- drove the other 12 hours in the same car, wouldn't mind to see him. Um, I guess, yes, I, I was coming at it from a nationalistic perspective, but I guess, um, you know, I'm writing for the New Zealand listener and... One thing, you know, um, my boss at The Listener has always sort of maintained that our readers are interested in is when there's a movie based on a true story, ask the question, you know, whether whether you're reviewing as a critic or whether you're talking to film directors, ask the question, how much is this based on a true story? Mm. And I'm and good on James Mangold for answering the questions. It was a phone interview. He was in a car somewhere in California. He could have put the phone down, you know, um, and good on him. He was yeah. a good sport. And um, I guess it's just kind of those, one of those things. Yeah, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, it's only a movie, but okay. But if it's only a movie, movies tend to have a lasting effect on people's memories. Yeah. Um, and this is, in a I way, rewriting a bit, history. It is a re- Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a very strange, well, not strange rewriter history, but it's it's kind of mythologising a character whose real story. Ken Miles is a really interesting guy. Yeah. You know, the, the character in the movie was this kind of, Constant rebel, constant maverick. But, mm. you know, um, this is a guy who was, when he was told to slow down, he did. Yeah. You know, and he might have regretted that decision. And Carol Shelby, the guy who told him to slow down, went to his grave regretting that decision and telling them, telling anybody who would ask him about it, I regret that decision. And what was Denny Holmes' attitude about it? Um, the only quote I ever found about him was, uh, we was robbed. But he, that can be said you know, in a kind of a winking kind of way. Right. Or I don't think he was too head up about it. It was one race in a very, fairly glorious career. Yeah. You know, he went on to better things immediately afterwards. Very soon after that, that period, he was part of the McLaren team doing amazing things in the UK and Can-Am series in, in Canada and in the States. So, you know, th- this wasn't his biggest disappointment. He had bigger glories to go on with. But I just sort of think, you know, Bruce McLaren especially, you know, He's kind of the Lord Rutherford of petrolheads in New Zealand. <laughs> and just to have, to, for him to be a marginalised character in a movie about this specific race, I don't, uh, you know, I sort of go, well, 
maybe at least in New Zealand you should know that if you're going to this film. Matt Damon himself in an interview with Jay Leno gave a glimpse into the reasons for the omissions. I was approached with a much bigger script with a lot more characters in it. It was just too unwieldy to try to do in, in a couple hours, right? But this script, the way they boiled it down to these two guys and this underdog story told through the eyes of this friendship, these kind of guys who were yeah, so different Yeah, I, I thought you did a great job. But here's a twist. When it comes to New Zealand, Matt Damon is a serial offender. He was an invict- Invictus, you know, Clint Eastwood's you know, great film about the Rugby World Cup in 1990. The Susie, Six, the, the, Susie, Susie the Susie one, where yeah. they uh, they got out a... Uh, we a had the wax. blacks vomiting on the side of the... Exactly, they had paddock. a waxworks journal on me playing. Um, it, was, it was excellent. So, you know, Matt Damon <laughs> has it in for New Zealand, everybody. And uh, so I, I don't say don't go to his films, but just, just keep it in mind. And, and if his, you're watching from a theatre in Takapuna. Exactly. And his, mate, and his mate Ben Affleck, of course, made Argo, which was the film where the New Zealand diplomats involved in getting the kidnapped uh, Americans out of the Middle Western country, there was no New Zealand in there either. So you know, it really sucks being the quiet achiever when nobody oh, kind of yeah. recognises you. And when you can, <laughs> when you complain, people say you're just being nationalistic yeah. or, or you're just waving just, a flag. It's just a movie. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, Ford versus Ferrari is, is, is an interesting movie in another aspect. Um. Outside the, um, the New Zealand bruised feelings, and that I asked James Mangold, the director, about this as well because it's, it portrays Henry Ford II, who's the grandson of Henry Ford, the uh, uh, Henry Ford. The Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. So Henry Ford II in the movie is given to making a rousing speech about going to war in Europe, just because he had been in the Navy in World War Two. Yeah, now we're going to win another war, he says. Eh? Yeah. yeah, and he's taking on Enzo Ferrari, who, you know, Ferrari was a manufacturer for the Italians in World War Two. Fine. Um, Mr Ferrari himself fought for the Allies in World War I because he was in the Italian army. So, you know, he switched sides. That's fine. But the funny thing I thought, and I put this to James Mangold, who wasn't quite aware of it, was that... Henry Ford II took over the Ford Company during World War II. Henry Ford's grandfather had had come back after Edsel Ford, Henry Ford's son, Henry Ford II's father, had died. Granddad came back into the company near the beginning of World War II. At that time, Ford had a branch in Germany before America entered the war using slave labour, and Henry Ford was quite okay with that. For Henry Ford Sr., this is. Mm. Henry Ford Sr. was quite an anti-Semite, Hitler gave Henry Ford Sr. a medal for being a friend of Germany, of, oh, of wow. Nazi Germany, before America entered the war. How could the director not know that if he's done his research? Oh, I don't know. There's this thing called Wikipedia that's quite good. I guess what I was concerned about and what I asked him about was what was the movie's relation to Ford? Because it kind of felt to me, and you know, I might be... Um, what Overreaching. The, well, there was a possibly a, a sly sponsorship deal going on. Well, there was on there. kind of a bit of a corporate reputation makeover happening. Mm. Even though Henry Ford II was portrayed as a bit of a bully and a bit of a buffoon, there was kind of this uh, slight eradication of uh, the unfortunate part of Ford's history. Um, and I want to say that once America entered the war, something that Henry Ford Sr. didn't want them to do, the, uh, the Ford branch in Germany became its own thing. It was, um, you know, it was using slave labour, but it wasn't under the approval of Ford in the States, well, as it had been 1939 to 1941. Meanwhile, in America, for Ford Factory is churning up bombers. Yeah, and um, and Henry Ford um, II is very proud of that fact and makes yeah. a speech to that effect. And, and yes, um, that, that's interesting. And I guess there are no manufacturers that have gone through World War One or World War II who have a glorious history that you, if you look too closely yeah. at it. But Henry Ford Sr. had some very dubious political views and... For his grandson to be quoting his World War II service, I just sort of thought, oh, bit iffy. Mm. <laughs> it is a movie that is very much seen through that 
kind of the way Americans often make movies, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, and it's kind know. of old-fashioned like that. Yeah, and I kind of, mm. I kind of get it. And um, it's funny, though, because you think, not just the New Zealand brews feelings, but the GT40, the famous, the car that they developed, was designed in Britain. Yeah. You know, because Ford was an international company. It was designed in Britain, kind of engineered in the States and hotted up by Carroll Shelby and other people and Ken Miles in they, the States. They kind of refer to that in a way where a lot of the mechanics have British accents. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's sort of interesting. And it's Henry Ford II developed a money-has-no-object racing program and used all the branches of Ford, which at that stage it was, was already an international corporation, not just an American D- Detroit um, motoring giant. And the other thing that may be slightly cynical, there's quite aside from the motor brands, there's clearly quite a bit of uh, product placement in the film from Coca-Cola. Every second shot mm. seems to be an ad like from soda. good old Coca-Cola. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those movies. It's a very of-the-time movie. I mean, you know, the 60s is portrayed in its full sort of mm. gorgeousness with the oh, yeah. good, cool clothes and the hip people. Oh, yeah, it's a great op-shot kind of film, really. <laughs> and those, the shape of those cars was pretty sexy. <laughs> sexy and dangerous because those cars safety features in them weren't great, you know, compared to what had to happen to those cars for people to survive crashes in them. You know, they were as... as No roll bars, nothing like that. Glorified Perspex go-karts, really, with, you know, seven-litre engines behind going uh, over 200 miles per hour and maintaining average speeds of 220 kilometres an hour for 24 hours. Bruce McLaren himself described the hazards, especially night driving, in the 1966 documentary This Time Tomorrow. At night, you, you have to watch, you have to, um, you have to be a little bit more careful placing the car, um, you have to look for the inside of the corners, and of course there is the illumination on the side of the track, the advertising, um, there is the, the headlights of the other cars, so I was looking forward to the daylight itself. And as that came up, uh, you, could, you could consciously start relaxing a little more and just take relief, in fact, out of the fact that now, now you could at least see where you were going. First number one port is 159 amps. Second number three port, also 159 amps. Third number two port, 156 amps. Port number five port. Uh, but then we got into a problem. The, the sun came up going into the S's and uh, come over the brow of the hill, having just gone underneath the Dunlop Bridge, plunged down into the S's, and suddenly you could hardly see a thing. The sun was so bright. Uh, the only thing to do then was to crack uh, my sunglasses. Next time round, uh, we had a pit stop. And the speeds in the Le Mans race aren't that much higher now. Down the straight, it wasn't too bad, providing you stayed in the middle of the road, just in case something went wrong, but it was still cruising down there at about 145 to 150 I suppose. We weren't losing too much time. I was knocking it out of gear and just letting it coast around the corners because we couldn't have been doing any more than five mile an hour around the corners and then bumping it into gear again slowly pulling away. So this is the worst time for the lot probably. During, when the road was dry it was even difficult in low gear as it was to get around the corners. Le Mans might seem like a, a, a carbon footprint blot on the on the landscape, but now it's it's kind of being used for the. Le Mans was used because it was a battle between car manufacturers. It was always used as a, as a development track. The features in the cars 
trickled down, and now they're using um, hybrids and electric cars in the races. So just as NASA building rockets, the technology trickles down through everyday use. This is this is an example of that. So mm. it's not this terrible battle of, of internal combustion engines that has lasted for since 1923. It's actually a really interesting institution te- as a sort of technological battlefield. Yeah. I mean, a lot of petrolheads will know this kind of history. Yeah. Uh, a lot of probably New Zealand average sports fan will not. No. From a New Zealand perspective, you can't write this kind of wrong. You've got a successful runaway film. It yeah. is, has been oh, no, quite no, you successful. Can't. You can't. And, and at the same time, I don't think you can shrug your shoulders mm. and go, it's just a movie. Because at the beginning of this movie, it says, based on a true story. And if it's right. sold along those lines, it's kind of like, well, I think, you know, annoying people like me are allowed to question that, you know, and that's, that's kind of my job. You know? Rise I, up, yeah. Kiwi petrol heads. Yeah, and I've, I've heard a few, <laughs> few reviews, and, you know, one on RNZ, frankly, that said, oh, I don't know anything about it, I quite enjoyed it, and um, mm. I don't care that, well, I don't, I don't know if it said I don't care, I don't care that a few New Zealand motorsports fans might know this might be able to join. It's kind of like, well, you know, it's history. Um, maybe you know, history can be examined. In Ford versus Ferrari, the message is that Ken Miles was robbed of the win by a technicality that benefited the Kiwi drivers. By the race's halfway point, it was clear that a Ford car would be taking home the trophy. But it was the race's end that would make the 1966 24 Hours of Le Mans one of the most controversial finishes in racing history. As the final lap neared, three of Ford's cars were at the front, with the lead two driven by Miles' team, followed by McLaren and Eamon. Miles had been driving record-setting laps, and the historic Triple Crown win for him was clear in sight. However, Ford's public relations team had other plans, opting for a literal photo finish. Ford requested that Miles slow down and finish side-by-side with McLaren for a picture that would truly emphasize the company's historic dominance at that year's race. After brief objection from Miles, he finally agreed to the decision, believing it would result in a tie for the Ford team. But this wasn't the case as Miles and McLaren finished the race alongside one another. Instead of declaring the race a tie, Lamar organizers stated that the car that had covered the most amount of ground was the winner. Technically, McLaren and Eamon's GT40 had been lined up a mere 8 meters behind Miles' car at the start of the race. Despite being the fastest driver, Miles had lost. And the record books show Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon came first. They won, but the film says that win was tainted because it was uh, stage managed by Ford. So that, that the first three cars, which were all Ford GT40s, would have this photo opportunity ending to the race. Um, and they would get one, two, three, and they would defeat Ferrari. And sorry, I've just... I guess spoiled the end of the movie for everybody. <laughs> it's hard to spoil historical that's true. movies. That's true, although if it's a movie that takes this much liberty with history, it could be a whole new ending. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, long story short, Chris Amon and Bruce McLaren were declared the winner because Le Mans, the rules of Le Mans are not who is the fastest, it's who's done the most distance in the 24 hours. Because it's an endurance race. Yeah. Okay. There are lots of other things that go into the controversy about why they were declared the winner and why the car driven by Ken Miles, who's played by uh, Christian Bale in the film, and Denny Holm, who barely appears in the film, uh, were second, even though they were ahead and the Ford bosses said, let's have this photo opportunity. So slow down. Let's slow down. You know, Ken Miles was told to slow down. There's some question, if you read some of the, the books as I have about it, that he was too far ahead anyway. He was over 
doing it in his car, he was risking the car fall apart. This is 1966, Le Mans. Um, in 1965, they, Ford had entered all those cars, all cars of a similar make. None had finished. They all blew up or they all had mechanical problems. They were entirely embarrassed. And that's not really covered in the film. And in that previous race, 1965, Bruce McCarran, New Zealand guy, was driving with Ken Miles, hero of this film. That's not covered in the movie. You know, um, the, this kind of... Yeah, uh, in fact, in the movie, it insinuates that he wasn't allowed to drive in that 65 race. Um, no, he was there, and he was one of uh, many four drivers that didn't finish. Just a couple of months after the famous race, Ken Miles died in a crash. I guess the filmmakers have extrapolated what he might have felt about the fact that he hadn't won at Le Mans. I guess for bearing a grudge on his behalf. They were bearing a grudge on his behalf, yeah. And I went looking, you know, and clearly he would have been aggrieved at the time. But, you know, he probably had another five races to go that season. And the fact that he died just two months later stops that story in a way. Yeah. Um, And it's interesting. He's clearly an interesting guy. But (laughs) so were his New Zealand teammates. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Adrian Holley. And thanks to the listeners, Russell Bailey, who assures me he's not going to start an online petition to right the wrongs of the movie. I, I quite accept the fact that you can dramatise a true story, but you shouldn't complain if people complain about it.